You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Revelation 8, please. If you have your Bibles, we are back in the book of Revelation. And if you know where we are roughly in the book of Revelation, so we're on the 8th chapter, 22 in Revelation. So we're nearing the halfway point anyway. And things are about to get pretty serious in this chapter right now, I can't lie. But as we enter and talk about the judgment of the Lord, I think it's important that we have, again, the larger narrative and context of this whole book in our minds before we do that, or else it seems out of place. And that's obviously the problem with these are books that had chapter divisions added later. They are supposed to be read as a complete whole. So I'm going to just go through a quick recap now to bring our minds all up to the same place before we look at these next series of judgments which are very severe on the earth. So to remind you, Revelation chapters 6 all the way through to 19 are dealing with this final seven-year period of history. We, we spoke about it, we called it Daniel's 70th week. It is a time of unparalleled trouble on this earth. There will never be a time like it again, nor has there ever been, Jesus said, a time of great distress. It is also a time that is particularly focused upon the nation of Israel. It is often called the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble, or the, the tribulation, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord. These are all names that are referring to this period. And what we are really looking at here is how God will once again reclaim the earth for his kingdom from those who are standing against him, from those who are usurping dominion over the earth, ultimately Satan and, at this point, fallen men who refuse to repent. Basically, if you want to put it like this, the eviction notice is being served in the book of Revelation and the landlord is coming back soon. That's pretty much what we have here in our, in our terms. In Revelation 4 and 5, we saw that glorious scene of the throne room of God the elders around the throne, the living creatures, worshipping, crying, holy, holy, holy to the Lord, day and night. And then that scene focused upon the scroll in the hand of him who sat upon the throne. We talked about that scroll a lot. At the centre of the throne, remember we saw the slain lamb. Right at the centre of the throne room was the lamb as it had been slain. And then we saw John cry out, who is worthy to open the scroll? And he was weeping when someone said to him, do not weep anymore, the lion of the tribe of Judah is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. And then we had that dramatic moment where the lamb stands, he takes the scroll which we argued was the title deed to the earth, based on the old land laws of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, being a relative of mankind, was the only one who had the right of redemption to redeem the earth back to its original owner. This is how the land laws worked in the Old Testament. That's what is being drawn upon in Revelation 5. It's a very important chapter. This is the significance of, this, of the sealed scroll that we are still looking at now, the sealed scroll. Now, we're about to see the series of judgments that come with the seventh seal, which begins the, what we call the, the trumpet judgments. But also remember, we argued that the church has been removed prior to this time, the first four seals witness the unveiling of this person we called the Antichrist, or this coming charismatic world leader, who will be basically Satan's attempt to have a false messiah figure. If you think about the grand narrative of the Bible, Satan has always wanted to take the place of God. That means he wants to have his own kingdom. That means he must have his own messiah figure. This is exactly the pattern you see figured in the book of Revelation. In, in many ways, with the restrainer the remove, that has been removed at this time, God is saying, fine, Let's see how you do. But then when God comes in judgment, he can't even stand against the breath of the Lord's mouth. That's, that's what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. This is a, Satan's attempt. We saw the first four seals. This was his, Satan's attempt to have this kingdom. 
as he takes control of governments, and we saw war, death, and famine that followed from all of these things going on. And by the end of the fifth seal, we have one-fourth of the Earth's population that has been destroyed through these things. It's a very serious time. And then the fifth seal was slightly different. It took us up again to look at the, the martyrs under the altar, those who had been killed for the testimony of Jesus, it said. Because of the word of God, they'd been killed. This gives us a clue of the nature of this time. The Antichrist is that which stands against God. He blasphemes against God. And therefore, those who stand for God, who pray in his name, who claim his name, are his targets. And we see them under the throne of God. And they're crying out for justice. Remember that. They're crying out for justice because what we're about to study now, we're going to see some of those prayers answered, actually, as we start moving through this book. So this is the final period. The sixth seal brought those cosmic, cosmic disturbances that we looked at the realisation from the kings of the earth that the wrath of God was being poured out. And then chapter 7 that we did just the last time we were in Revelation, it was an interlude chapter, breaks from the chronology and it showed us a different focus of the tribulation period. Even though judgment is being poured out, God is still saving people. We talked about how God's ultimate desire is always to save. We saw this group of 144,000 Jewish people who were sealed and we looked at the background to that coming from the book of Ezekiel, remember, where they sealed the people in Jerusalem who were not to be harmed by the judgments coming on the earth, and it is their job to take the gospel during this time. And they have uh, a lot of success. We saw that great multitude under, under the throne again, who are those identified as coming out of the Great Tribulation, and this seems to be the result of the 144,000. So that's where we're up to now. It's, it's, a, it's an intense book and there's a lot going on. But as I said, studying Revelation will make you a good theologian. It'll push you into the whole of the Bible. It'll draw your narrative all the way back from Genesis to Revelation. So it is a blessing. So let's look at Revelation 8 now, please. Let's read the first five verses and then we'll make comment on that. These are the trumpet judgments. So it says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and earthquake. So there we go. Now, a lot of you, we read that, and that's obviously probably quite foreign to, to some of us. That sounds what's going on here. Let's see if we can bring a bit of clarity to that. First thing I like to point out is that, notice, Jesus here is still referred to as the Lamb. It's still the lamb at this stage, which I find very interesting. That lamb that we saw that was slain in the centre of the throne, the one who is now breaking these seals, he is very definitely in charge of what is going on here. He broke the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And this is, you could say it's the calm before the storm. If you've heard that expression, this, this is something of what is about to happen here. And if you read any commentaries on Revelation, you'll find this huge amount of speculation as to this little phrase, why half an hour's silence in heaven? No one really has a, a good answer. There's a few things I want to share with you where I think the answer lies. Most people usually come up with the explanation that this is like just to build tension. You know, it's like what is about to happen is so dramatic that it shocks the whole of the heavenly hosts 
and they're just watching in awe. And whilst that could very well be true, that may be a part of it, I believe there's something more to it that is actually going on here. Now think, up until this point in the book, Revelation has been a very noisy book, hasn't it? We've seen voices from thunder, we've seen the earth quaking from these loud voices, lightning, natural disasters happening. We've also seen into the heavenly throne room, we've seen the chorus of the angels, the heavenly host, the 24 elders, all singing praise to God. There's noise everywhere at this point, but then suddenly silence breaks out in the heavenly host. So it is a dramatic point, something very specific is happening here. And the, the way I think is best to understand this is to realise what we have going on in Revelation. You might have, this is a temple scene that we have in Revelation. You may have noticed that the old, there's a lot about the temple and the tabernacle, the worship of the priests, and all these different things that we see through most of the Old Testament. All of them are related to what we are seeing here in Revelation. It is temple imagery that we have being talked about in these first verses. The whole of Revelation, in fact, if you, if you pick up on it, is filled with priestly and temple imagery. Right back to that first chapter where we saw that glorified vision of Jesus Christ and he's wearing white robes with a golden sash. These are high, priest, high priestly robes. Then we saw the seven golden candlesticks. These are the things that you would find inside the temple. The bowls of incense that we've just read. Worshippers in the throne room of God singing praises. We just read about a golden censer. These were the tools that Moses and Aaron had to use in the tabernacle. All of this stuff we find in Revelation, it's all temple imagery, drawing us back to the Old Testament to make sure we understand what's going on. And this is what we find throughout the whole of the Bible. Habakkuk 2 verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let all the earth. Now we're seeing all of heaven be silent before him right now. So again, something's different. Now what I want to do is read to you from Hebrews chapter 8. If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We'll read a few scriptures here. I really want you to try and see what's happening here. It's one of those times where you kind of, you know you've got part of what the Lord is trying to get through these scriptures, but it's such a deep passage of scripture that there's just so much more that, than I can really share with you now or have even grasped myself. But I want to try and just enlighten you as to some points of what is happening here. We must remember, let's read Hebrews 8 verse 5 and then, I, then I'll tell you what we need to remember as we read Revelation. So in chapter 8, Hebrews verse 1, it says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. You understand what it's saying there, yeah? High priest, Jesus Christ, in heaven, in the true tabernacle, up in heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, that's very significant. The actual design for this tabernacle that we read about in the Old Testament, these, all these things, the placement, the candlesticks, the bronze altars, came directly from the Lord. And it was designed as a copy of what was actually in heaven, of the heavenly throne room that we see there. And you have, you have to understand that. And then again in Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 23, it says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heaven to be cleansed with these speaking of blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So you see what is actually being said here, that everything that we were witnessing through the Old Testament with this tabernacle and sanctuary is but a copy of what is in the heavenly places. And just as the priest used to spread the animal blood to to sanctify the altars and all these different things, when Christ the high priest was sacrificed, he ascended up into heaven and and purified the the actual true tabernacle up there with the better blood of a better sacrifice himself at that point. So this is what we have here, the true tabernacle in, in heaven on the earth corresponding to what we see down here. So this is why when we're reading Revelation and we're peering into the heavenlies, it's no surprise that we're reading about these heavenly, these priestly services that are sort of mirrored for us all throughout the Old Testament. This is one of those times where I said, remember, if you don't know the Old Testament, Revelation is going to be a very cryptic book to you. This is where most, most of the imagery is drawn from the Old Testament. So... In the, if you remember the tabernacle, you had the outer courts, the inner courts, and the holy place, and then right in the centre you had what we called the Holy of Holies, yes? You remember that? And in there you had the Ark of the Covenant, and this was where the dwelling place of God was. Now what do you think the Holy of Holies corresponds to in the heavenly tabernacle? It's the, dwelling, it's the throne room. It's the dwelling place of God. This throne room that we've been reading about in chapters 4 and 5 if you correspond that to the tabernacle, that is the Holy of Holies, that is the throne room. So it's no surprise that right next to the Holy of Holies, if you, if you read in Exodus, you'll find that there was this altar of incense, the golden altar, which was the very closest thing to the Holy of Holies. So it's no surprise that now that we're reading Revelation, that we see right next to the throne room of God, the bowls of incense being offered on the altar of incense there. It's an exact picture and a mirror that we have going on. So that, that's the picture that we have here. Now what about the 30 minutes? Now follow with me here. If you read the book of Exodus in the chapters that detail all of these specific regulations and things like that, again, quite foreign to us. We weren't there to see it. We don't know. It's it's not directly in our mind all the time, but let me try and put it in our minds for a little bit. There was one thing that the priests had to do. It was called the, the offering of incense. And so what they would have to do is they would have to take coals from this altar, this was the bronze altar, this was the altar where the sacrifices were made, this is the the sacrifice altar, which was outside the court, and twice a day they would have to go and take those hot coals, and then certain priests who were appointed for this task would go into the holy place, right before the curtain here. The Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God, is behind those curtains, and right before it was this gold altar, which is called the altar of incense. So they would have to take the coals from the burnt altar outside, place them on top of this little altar that they saw here, and then the priest would then put the incense on there. And the incense would steam up, and it would go underneath the curtain and into the holy place of God. That's what we had happening on earth, which is exactly what we've just read happening in in real time in the heavenlies with the prayers of the saints. You see the parallels going on here. This, I believe, is really what's going on. Now, interestingly, though, For most of the temple services, the sacrifices and all these other different offerings that were made throughout the day, it was a very noisy affair. The the Levitical choir was saying specific prayers, they were singing, there was chanting, there was music and there was offerings, there was the hustle and bustle of all the people going on, bringing all their things. However, for the offering of the altar of incense, it was a very solemn affair and there was silence in the temple at this time. Let me read to you, this is a small uh, excerpt from Alfred Edersheim's book, The Temple, Its Ministry and Its Services. He's an old Jewish believer from the 19th century. This book has probably never been matched in its detail of the temple. 
he gives us a little insight into what's going on here. I'll read it all for you. He says, Slowly, the incensing priest and his assistants ascended the steps to the holy place, preceded by the two priests who had formerly dressed the altar and the candlestick, and who now removed the vessels they had left behind, and then worshipping, they withdrew. And next, one of the assistants reverently spread the coals on the golden altar, and the other arranged the incense. And then the chief officiating priest was left alone within the holy place to await the signal of the president before burning the incense. And as the president gave the word of command which marked that the time of incense had come, the whole multitude of people without drew from the inner court, fell down before the Lord, spreading their hands in silent prayer. It is the most solemn period when throughout the vast temple buildings deep silence rested on the worshipping multitude, while within the sanctuary itself, the priest laid the incense on the golden altar and the cloud of odours rose up before the Lord, which serves as the image of heavenly things in its description. Now this is the background, if you remember, to actually certain part in the beginning of the Christmas narrative or, or the gospel birth infancy narratives in Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist's father, you remember he was a priest and he was appointed for priestly service. And when he had that vision from the angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him what was going to happen and he didn't believe him and he went mute. But in Luke chapter 1 verse 8 it says this, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn the incense. So that he was called to do exactly the, the ritual we've just been talking about. And then it says the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So this is just the same context of what's happening in the New Testament there. Now, interestingly, you can learn from the Jewish writings at this time that they had put, specified a certain amount of time that it took for the priest to come out and get the coals to take them back in, and the exact phrase they use is about half an hour. That's what they say. That was, that was how long it took for the priest to get the coals, bring them to the altar, and for the whole thing to happen. So if it was going on, that's probably why there's this great expectation that something must have happened to, to uh, Zacharias, because he the time has passed, he's been in there too long and he comes out and that's how they know something's wrong. It, it, it's unusual for them. But this is the half an hour time associated with the incense offering and most likely, as I said, we just read all of those passages in Revelation that talk about this exact incense offering being burnt and offered. It's no surprise that you see this phrase, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's following the pattern that was laid out from the heavenlies to the book of Exodus and now we're reading it in the New Testament back in Revelation. I find that sort of stuff amazing when you see how the Bible fits together like that. It seems to be what we're witnessing here in Revelation. So for me, that's my explanation of that. For me, fits best of why we have this unusual phrase, silence in heaven for about half an hour associated with these things. The smoke of the incense, of course, is the prayers of the saints. That is something that we know. It represents the prayers of the saints. And I love this imagery because if you think about where the incense altar was, right in front of the Holy of Holies. No one was allowed behind the Holy of Holies except the high priest one day of a year on the Day of Atonement, but something that was to be done every single day. In fact, continually, there must never not be incense burning on the altar. That prayer, those prayers can go under that curtain and fill the throne room of God. Your prayers always reach the throne room of God. This is the imagery that we have here being pictured in the physical, and now in Revelation we're seeing that that is in fact what is happening in the spiritual too. When we pray, they are ascending to heaven and we've just read about them filling the altar of incense there. It's just amazing this, I find. Now, in Exodus we're also told that when they burned the incense, it was ignited from the coal of the altar. We know through typology that the altar is the place of sacrifice. In New Testament language we would say the altar is the cross. That is where the high priest's sacrifice was offered himself. The, ult the ultimate altar is the cross. 
And I like this. If you think about prayer and the altar, they're connected. And even in the throne room, you see they're connected. So think about this. In order to have the prayers going under the curtain into the holy place, the prayers being into the throne room of God, you had to first come from the altar. We first go to Jesus Christ on the cross, don't we? And then we become his children, and then the prayers of the saints as we pray go up to God. All of these things are connected, you see, but laid out by this pattern thousands of years through history that we see now coming to fulfilment, that those of us who are saved and are children of the Lord, we have this access, our prayers have access to the throne room of God. Amazing. Right, let's look at verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Again, I'm going to draw on some Jewish tradition here. The seven angels who stand before God, again, this is just Jewish tradition, but Quite often you get, so many times through the Bible you'll see Jewish tradition that is clearly exceeding what was written, and Jesus stands quite firmly against that, it's usually the oral law, but quite often you'll find there are elements of Jewish tradition that, that are in keeping, and Jesus affirms them, he, he engages in them, and he agrees with them. This is one of those places where you do get a strange correspondence between what is happening. In Jewish literature, they taught that there were seven angels who stand before God, we see that in Revelation, it says there are seven angels who stand before God and the trumpets were given to them. In, in these extra-biblical books, again, not biblical books, but they're books that tell us a lot about the thought of the Jews at the time, like One, e One Enoch and the apocryphal book Tobit, there is many references made to these seven angels. In fact, they even have the names for them. Uriel, Raphael, Ragelm, Michael, Sarakel, Gabriel and Remeliel. Now, we don't know if all those names are true. We, we can only affirm what we have in the Bible, where we have Michael and we have Gabriel. But we do have the phrase specifically in Luke 1.19 that Gabriel is one of the angels that stands before God. So it's likely that there is some correspondence of what is going on here. But that is, but the seven angels, they're given the trumpets. Verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense which the prayers, which, uh, with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So there's our incense offering you see there being done in heaven. These are the prayers of the saints rising up to God, and most likely at this time they're probably the prayers of those we read in the fifth seal, those martyrs crying out to God, when, Lord, will we have justice? And he says, just wait a little while longer, remember? You're going to have justice soon. And we're about to start seeing that now come upon the earth. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds of flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now this sort of changes pace now and it becomes a little different picture that we have here. And the imagery here again is coming from the book of Ezekiel. Do you remember when we saw the mark on people's foreheads for the Jewish evangelists? We saw that that also happened last time Jerusalem was judged in the book of Ezekiel. In that same chapter, it also says this in Ezekiel 10, verse 2. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim. Fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. It was a dramatic image that God's judgment, the, the coals being thrown upon Jerusalem, was symbolic of, emblematic rather, of judgment coming on the city. Exactly the same as what we're seeing in Revelation now. Judgment is about to come from these coals that are being thrown down. It symbolizes the judgment falling. And there does seem to be a connection here between the prayers of the saints and the coming judgment of God. And it, we must remember this. One of the ways that God has decreed that we be involved in his work is through prayer. 
It's always said that prayer is the greatest weapon that a Christian have. It's, it's the thing that actually involves us and activates us in his, king, in his kingdom. But we see as this happens, we see peals of thunder and sounds, of voices it might read, it's the same word actually being translated. Notice again now, we've come from very noisy silence, and now we're back to very noisy again. So everything, we've had that moment of reflection with the, in, the incense offering, and now things are back, the silence is broken, the calm before the storm is gone, and now the storm is in full effect, and we're about to read that. Verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Verse 7, The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and a third of all the green grass was burned up. Now trumpets are used for a number of things in the Bible. We often see a trumpet when God intervenes dramatically in history. There will be a trumpet when he comes to call his bride home. That he will use, he's used trumpets on Mount Sinai. We heard trumpets blowing when the law was given. They are often used in the Bible to sound an alarm. The watchmen on the wall would blow trumpets if they saw the enemy army approaching. Trumpets were also used to announce that the king or royalty is approaching. And that's quite significant. And they are also a call to war. The watchmen blow the trumpet, the troops then would gather. And this is, this is how it was. I think all of those three things could actually sort of be applied to this passage that we're do- looking at here. Hail, fire, and mixed with blood. Now, again, if you read commentaries, many try to speculate at this point in Revelation. And this is quite sometimes one of the things that makes people not want to read Revelation because you get so much speculation. Uh, and usually it relates about looking at what sort of weapons would produce this sort of effect. So some sort of nuclear explosion that causes nuclear winter and blocks out the sun. And whilst you know, we can't definitely withdraw those things, I'm not going to speculate on any of them. And I don't, I don't really think that's the right way to try and handle in interpreting these texts because it's a, that's a very specific interpretation that could only really have happened in our lifetime. Um, but I think something else is actually being pushed at us here this is clearly a supernatural judgment to me, and to try and come up with a, a natural explanation, not that the Lord can't use those things, and he does clearly in, in many places, natural things for his judgment. This is something supernatural, we don't really know what this is, but I want to show you what it's trying to point us to, and that again is the book of Exodus. You might have noticed how much the book of Exodus mirrors for us here Revelation, uh, and this is why. The plagues of Egypt, do you remember the ten plagues of Egypt? You'll find parallels to them in these things that we're reading in Revelation now. Let me read to you Exodus verse 9, 23 to 24. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst, very severe, such as has not been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Very similar wording, very similar, this fire and hail that we see here. It was, it was a literal event that happened in Exodus. We didn't need any other different explanation, just the fact that the Lord, this is something supernatural. And we see that again now in Revelation, and the, and the connection there is to us. Now remember, what happens to Israel serves as a microcosm for the world in this end-time period. Okay? And it does for the church. This is Like I always say, this is why the Old Testament is so big because there's so many lessons that we get from the nation of Israel. And this is why Paul said to us specifically, learn the lessons of Israel to the church, he said this. So we we must look back and learn at these things. What we see happening to Egypt 
teaches us a lot about this end time. So just as the judgment on Egypt were literal, so I believe the judgments here will be literal. We see similar language throughout. In the same way, in the Exodus story, Pharaoh refused to repent, didn't he? Even in the midst of the judgments being poured out. And as we read through Revelation, we see that in many places, this group of people called earth dwellers refuse to repent, even in the midst of these judgments being poured out. Exact parallels. Just as the plagues of Egypt resulted ultimately in the overthrow of Pharaoh, or ultimately in the sacrificing of a lamb, the releasing of the Israelites, and ultimately in the overthrow of Pharaoh and his armies, remember in the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, and then it gave birth ultimately to the theocratic kingdom of Israel. That's the story that we have in in Exodus. Now, the plagues of the tribulation period will result in the overthrow of Antichrist and his armies and will ultimately lead to the giving of birth of the messianic kingdom. Exact parallels here going on that you can see happening. And look at the connection. I'm going to jump to Revelation 15 briefly. We will be there soon, but I want to show you this Moses connection. Now, if you remember the story in Exodus, the Passover happened, the blood of the lamb, that was how you protected yourself from judgment coming. They went through, the Exodus happened, and all this stuff that went through it. And then, as soon as they were out through the Red Sea, Pharaoh was destroyed. We have this chapter in Exodus where they sing a victory song and it's called the Song of Moses. You can read the whole song, the Song of Moses. Now, in Revelation 15, paralleling what we've just gone through in all of this stuff in Revelation, the overthrow of Antichrist, the destruction of his armies, it says this, And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and look, and they sang the Song of Moses. But then it also adds the bondservant of God and the Song of the Lamb. So it actually makes specifically in the text that connection between what is happening in Exodus with the Song of Moses and it adds to it now the ultimate fulfilment in Revelation which is now the Song of the Lamb, this slain lamb that we saw right in the centre of the throne who is the one breaking these seals, bringing these judgments just like it was the Lord who was bringing these judgments upon the Exodus and he brought his people through that and now we're seeing he's bringing his people through that which will ultimately give birth to the Messianic Kingdom. You see that the Bible is amazing when you see these books written so far apart, hundreds of years apart, different authors, and yet these themes are just all throughout the book. uh, It is amazing. Right, now let's look at the next section, verse 8. Back in Revelation now. It says, The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now notice it says like a great mountain, it doesn't say a great mountain. For me that implies that this is clearly something he doesn't really have the vocabulary to explain what it is, implying for me again that this is uh, a supernatural thing of which we can't really speculate, and John is doing the best he can from his perspective to try and give us an idea of what he is seeing. A third of the creatures, a third of the sea, a third of the ships on top of what we've already just seen with a third of the trees and a third of the grass. And I want you to really think about how much that would change the world as we know it. And this is one of the things that I always find when you're reading books, maybe arguing about the the rapture and all these different things, that people always want to downplay the tribulation. And they, they almost have it as a picture, like it's just like our world now, but with lots of wars going on. And that is just not the case in this final period of history everything is going to be completely different as we know it. There's really going to get to a point where there will be no infrastructure left. 
I mean, we had one tiny storm and we've lost power for three days because a couple of trees fell down. I mean, and it's funny, but I'm not joking, but think about what would actually happen if you had devastation to the world on this thing. There'd be no such thing as power. There's no one running coal stations. There's no electricity cables across the world. There's no internet. There's not, none of this is happening. It just cannot really be physically possible, except maybe in very f few surviving areas where power is centralised. But this is what we have going on here. It's a devastating, devastating effect. And again, the water turning to blood, what does that remind you of? Where do we see that again? Right back in the book of Exodus, don't we? That was one of the plagues, the Nile turning to blood. Verse 10. The third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Again, this is a difficult passage. Some argue that this wormwood thing is like a meteor that comes, some sort of cosmic disturbance. If it is, it could be. It's unusual to have it named in such a specific way if it is. And because of that, some people argue that this is actually a demonic activity that we see here. We'll, we'll see a character called wormwood as we study. The word simply means bitterness. That's what wormwood means. And there was an actual root, a plant around at this time that produced a very bitter and poisonous if you, it was poisonous, basically, if you had it in water or drunk from it. So playing on all those themes here, I'm not going to speculate with what it is, but whatever it is, it brings devastation to water. And this is not the sea now, this is inland, this is rivers, this is drinking water. So again, think of the devastation that that would have. You know, your taps don't turn on anymore, there's no such thing. Even natural sources of water where you might think you would get water if you didn't have a tap, these things now are being polluted again in many places of the world. It brings more devastation, causing many to die. You see why I wanted you to have the grand narrative of the book here. This is that final era pushing to the destruction of all evil things on the earth. God has rescued already his bride from this period. He still holds out grace and redemption for any who will see what is happening and want to repent and want to be saved. But there are those, like we read, just like Pharaoh, who refuse to be saved and are hell-bent on destroying God's people at this time. And when the martyrs cry out for justice, we understand justice, those who do wrong. We have our court system loosely based on justice principles like that. And this is the heavenly court system. Justice is going to be served. Judgment will come. And this is what we're seeing here, which will lead to a world where these things are completely different. And that's ultimately where we're trying to get to. But this is what we have going on here. So let's... Uh, Let's look at verse 12 now. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and a night in the same way. It's hard to sort of know what they mean here. Most people think that something is going to happen so that one third of the day and night are plunged into darkness in that way, as in our days will be much shorter for whatever reason, and this will have a huge impact on, obviously, the climate, on anything that is left on this earth at this time. And it does seem to be a theme that is associated with the coming of the Lord. Matthew 24, 19, Jesus said, After the tribulation, when the sun's darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the sky. Isaiah 13, verses 9 and 10, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and anger, to make the land a desolation, and sinners will be exterminated from it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. So how that happens, we're not really sure. But again, this is one of the things that we see here is God showing his hand over the creation. 
Because you remember one of the, the biggest charges that the Apostle Paul wrote about is when men reject God, they fill it with something else, the void that mankind has to naturally worship something, and more often than not it says that they start to worship the created order rather than the creator. We see this in some wi- like radical wings of the environmentalist movement, and God is the one who created. He did it with a few words. It's very easy for him. He's, he doesn't have a lack of resources. He can do that again whenever he wants. So he seems to be here removing those things in which God, man, rebellious man, has placed all of their trust. And that is why he's doing what he's doing. It's not, it's not a, a call for us not to care about the environment and stewardship. It's really not even related to that. And I don't like to bring those sort of issues into it. This is God showing his hand, his sovereignty over the created order. And no one has the right to do that except God, because he is the creator, you see. That's, that's really the point behind all of this. Then verse 13, this is our final verse. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels which are about to sound. So it says, I heard an eagle flying in heaven. Some, some manuscripts read an angel flying in heaven. In the Greek, there's a very small difference, a couple of, of different letters, which is probably why that variation has arisen. And whatever the case, for me, it does seem to be that this is not an eagle in the sense of an actual eagle. It seems to have angelic properties because it's crying out, woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth. It, it, this is, again, something very supernatural. And uh, if you remember those creatures that we saw before the throne room of God, it specifically said of them that they fly like an eagle. So it could be just one of these angelic people on a mission here that we see a lot of and their message to the earth is whoa 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 so you think what we've just read is bad god has to have a pause now and we have this special angel announcing that what is about to come with the next three trumpets is in fact even more serious for those who dwell on the earth and i want you to remember that phrase whenever we read these judgments is in the context of that little phrase for those that dwell on the earth that is a specific phrase used in revelation of people who have taken a stand willingly, knowingly at this time against God and for the Antichrist. So it's not just like, again, we mustn't picture our world and all these sort of helpless, innocent people who don't know what's going on at this time, who are just being targeted with these judgments for no particular reason. That era is gone. This is something quite different here. At this point, people are making their, they're, they're taking their stand against the Lord. And ultimately, we'll see when he comes back, they will even take their stand against the Lord as he appears in glory course there'll be no match for the Lord as he appears in glory but that is what we see going on here now again think about what is happening here it seems to be that with all these judgments a third of this a third of that that the world is being depleted this globe where man is in rebellion to God where where the Antichrist and Satan is trying to have his final stand to get his kingdom it's just being shrunk third of this is going and why is that happening when we read about what actually happens in the final days the time when Jesus comes back it's all focused on a very particular area of the globe the area really between Babylon and Jerusalem. And we'll read about that in Revelation 17 and 18. These are the two specific areas. So it seems to be that the focus is going to end up right where it all started. And is that not right, really? Right where Jesus came, the first time it'll be where it all started. This is where everything really is leading to. The promised land, the exodus motif coming out of Egypt into the promised land. The world is being shrunk here. Resources are being depleted. This is mass devastation, like something we really can't imagine what the world is. And this is why I believe when the king returns, he will return to Jerusalem to rescue Israel. It'll be very similar to the Exodus motif in some ways. Now, 
it's good to just stop there. This is Revelation. That's the whole of chapter 8 we've done now. Let's have a little reminder that still during this period, God is holding out the offer of salvation to his people. He's got the 144,000 who are sealed so that they will not die in these judgments. Remember it says, I have to seal them before you do these judgments because their mission is going to be to take the gospel to people. Soon we're going to see an angel circulating the world too, proclaiming the gospel. It really is last chance saloon for these people. But God is still holding out that offer. However, for those of us sitting here in this day and age, it's much better to hear the word of the Lord today to make sure that you are not part of that category called the earth dwellers, the Lord offers us a different category. He calls it to be a son of the kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom of God. That is really what he desires for all of us. The way we do that is we repent and we believe the gospel. The way they did that in the Exodus was they slayed the Passover lamb and they put the blood on their door and anyone inside that house was safe. It's the very same with us. Jesus is called the Passover lamb. He shed his blood on the cross. We apply that blood to our lives through faith. We are safe. From the coming judgment. This is the theme that we see consistently throughout the whole Bible. Now, think about this. The last time a global judgment came on the earth, it's right back in the book of Genesis, wasn't it? It was the flood of Noah. That was the last global judgment that came on the earth in this completely global way. And where were people commanded to find safety at this time? In the ark that Noah was building. And what happened? People scoffed at Noah. People didn't listen to Noah's preaching. Noah was considered to be stupid and foolish. The fact that the global flood would occur went against the prevailing thought of the day and no one listened to him. And yet here we are in the church age thousands of years later and we're talking again about a coming global judgment and a man called Jesus who died on a cross 2,000 years ago under the Roman Empire for the sins of the world and three days later he rose again. And what happens? Again, people mock. Again, people don't believe. Again, people don't expect that judgment will come and they scoff. To those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness. Those who are perishing will be those earth dwellers in that final period, if, if they're around for that period. Just as the ark was foolishness to those in Noah's day. It's the same parallel that we see being drawn here. Parallels in the Bible are always so significant. Where is it that they found safety from the coming storm? They found safety in the ark made of wood by Noah. And where is it that we find safety? It's in that wooden cross, and in particular, the altar. Remember that it pictures the one who died on that wooden cross all those years ago. That is ultimately the heart of the gospel. This is the refuge that God offers to us. This is what he commissioned the church to tell the earth. Just like he commissioned Noah to preach righteousness because judgment is coming, he told us to go out and preach the gospel because ultimately judgment is coming. God wants as many as possible to enter the ark before that judgment comes. Now just remember this also. The ark did no good for Noah and his family unless they actually entered it. You could stand out and look at it, but unless you actually enter it. See, most people in our world are standing out and looking. They see people worshipping, they see the cross, they've heard about Jesus in some way, but they're not going in. They're not entering in. And that means the act of entering into the ark was actually Noah and his family exercising faith in God's word. That's the point of that, what I mean by entering, because to actually make it impact your life, they had to enter, they had to be obedient to God's word. This is why it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When God says repent, we believe and we have faith. This is what we do. It's the same for us. 
You may have noticed in the New Testament the phrase used of us when we're saved is we are in Christ Jesus. Just as they were in the ark, we are in Christ Jesus. That's one of the points. To enter into Christ Jesus, we have to exercise faith in his word. We believe that he died for our sins, we repent of our sins, and we believe in him for salvation, and we are then made part of the church. We enter into his body, and his body will not suffer judgment like this again, because his body already suffered the judgment 2,000 years ago on the cross. This is the whole point of everything we're reading here, which is again another reason why I believe Revelation and the church is not here for most of this revelation and why we have a focus on earth dwellers and those who refuse to repent. This is why we don't suffer the wrath of God. Now the question that this really has to leave us with is where are we today? Are we safe in the ark? Are we safe in Christ Jesus? Do we have the blood of the lamb on our doorposts? If you don't, then you need to listen to the word of God. You need to understand what he did for you 2,000 years ago, that he did that because he loves you, because ultimately he has a better future, he wants you to be a son of his kingdom, he wants to dwell with you for eternity in this coming kingdom that we will see at the end of the book of Revelation. And to do that, we acknowledge our sin, that he died for us, we repent, we exercise faith, we believe that he died and rose again, and he makes us a citizen of his kingdom. This is what God asks of us. We have to believe his word, we must enter the ark. Amen? You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.